2: Childhood and teen obesity have grown to epidemic proportions in the U.S. As of 2010, more than one-third of children and adolescents in this country were overweight or obese. In 2018, statistics from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey and three major studies report that the national childhood obesity rate is now 18.5%. Can a parent help a child or a teen who is suffering from overeating? Our guest today will answer that question and much more. Our guest is Dr. Michelle Maidenberg. Dr. Maidenberg will be discussing her new book, Free Your Child from Overeating, 53 Mind-Body Strategies for Lifelong Health. The book draws upon CBT, acceptance and commitment therapy, as well as mindfulness, It has been described by reviewers as giving parents and teens all the tools they need to succeed. Dr. Maidenberg is an adjunct professor at NYU University here in New York. She created and coordinates the Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Program at Camp Shane, a health and weight management camp for children and teens, and it's across the nation. It's in New York, Arizona, Georgia, Texas and the Shane Diet and Fitness Resorts for Young Adults and Adults in New York and Texas. Dr. Michelle Maidenberg, it is my pleasure to welcome you to Psych Up Live.
3: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
2: Michelle, we both know that parents have tried and schools have tried to address overeating with nutrition programs and exercise suggestions, often with little success. How is the program described in your book different?
3: It is very different because we're usually looking at, you know, exercise and daily intake, you know, which is pretty antiquated. Um, You know, it's calories in, uh, calories out. So this approach really focuses on the psychological barriers to weight loss and weight management. And we don't actually seek for children and adolescents to lose weight, but actually to maintain a healthy lifestyle over time. That's really, uh, you know, we don't want it to be kind of a Band-Aid approach or quick fix. It's something that they're going to acclimate in their life and integrate as a lifestyle approach. So when we're looking at, you know, whenever I do workshops, for example, I'll ask people in the audience, you know, how many of you have lost weight? over a period of time, and all the hands go up, and then I ask them, how many of you have maintained it over time, and most of the hands go down. So we, as a society, we know how to lose weight. Most people have lost weight. The real question is why people cannot maintain it over time, and that's where we really have to consider the psychological barriers. It's not just the physicality of it, which we know a lot about. It's also psychologically. You know, how we cope with, you know, adversity and, you know, a challenge such as, you know, overeating.
2: So a number of parents have asked when they heard about your book and the show. How do you actually motivate a youngster to get involved in a program that deals with overall wellness and healthy eating? And so the example is our typical 13-year-old boy who's overweight. He has friends, but he mostly plays video games. He's not too active. He's a great kid. He does chores around the house. He walks dogs for neighbors. Everybody's working, so he comes home to an empty house. His sister's at chorus and some other activities. But what he spends his money on, Michelle are snacks and fast food that he eats when he comes home, which means he's usually not hungry for dinner. That's when the battle ensues. So how does a parent engage our 13-year-old boy here in the kind of program you're speaking about?
3: So, again, with, you know, with children and adolescents, there's a lot of barriers today, which we know socially um, with, again, you know, we, we tend to lead pretty sedentary lifestyles just with video games and cell phones and, you know, all the right. media. Um, we're just not as active as we used to be, and that's actually a known fact. It's, you know, validated by research. Um you know, th- this is different because we don't, I don't look at, you know, the word motivation is an interesting word. <laughs> um, and I don't believe in the word motivation because formatively we thought as, you know, once we, we have to be motivated in order to do something, right? Like, you know, the slogan, like Nike, you know, just do it. The motivation comes after the doing, not before the doing. So it's really tapping in the book. What I do is I tap kids into their values, they need to connect to something that's meaningful to them, that makes sense, that's then going to help them and foster and initiate, you know, their willingness to participate. Okay. You know, and that and that could be a number of different things. And I actually did a lot of focus groups with kids to identify what the core values might be. You know, as, as parents and as adults, we think that the core values should be focused around health and longevity. So we tell our kids, you know, if you eat a healthy lifestyle, if you exercise, you're going to live a long life. Well, a 13-year-old's not thinking about their longevity. According to them, they're going to live forever. <laughs> right. So, so it doesn't really speak to them. You know, it doesn't speak to them when you say that. So what I've identified as kind of the core values you know, which they could actually, and, and again, it, we could be judgmental that they should, you know, again, adhere to a certain value system. But what I've, is really about, um, about relationships, that tends to be really important to them. Mm -hmm. Um, like so for example if they're avoiding socializing for whatever reason or they feel rejected or excluded or made fun of um, or if they're avoiding specific activities because of the way they look you know that's really compelling the health costs is another factor you know whether they're going to the doctor and the doctor is telling them that they have high blood pressure if -hmm. it's impacting their sleep you know often sleep is impacted for example um, if you know fitness costs so, for example, let's say they're not moving; they're moving at a slower pace in the sports that that they really enjoy, um, or they're just having difficulty being active in general. Whether it's walking up a flight of stairs, you know, catching their breath when they're exerting themselves, right. there's also a physical, you know, comfort. In other words, are they wearing the kind of type of clothing that they want to wear? You right. know. Um, you know, are they comfortable enough to do whatever type of physical activity that they want to be doing? Mm. And I've, I've heard, I remember I was sitting here with, you know, with a teenager and we were talking and we were talking about the values that, you know, and there's some others, which I'll mention in a few minutes. But, And I said to her, I said, why do you want to do this? Why are you here? You know, what's the purpose? And she said to me, I really want to play soccer. And I've, I haven't mm. been able to do that because I just can't. Move as quickly as I want to, and I'm embarrassed, and I and even physically, I'm not able to. And she got really choked up, and you know, and started crying. And her mom was sitting in the session with her because we were going over some, you know, some things that her mom could be supportive of. And she looked at me and she goes, "I didn't even know my daughter wanted to play soccer. This is news to me." Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But once once she started talking about it, you could tell that she really felt like she was missing out, and she. She really kept herself from doing something she really wanted to be doing. You know, so that gets into self-acceptance and self-love. You know, does it take away from them seeing themselves in the way they want to be seeing themselves? Are they spending an extensive amount of time thinking about food and dieting and exercise? Um, You know, are they frequently feeling, like, shame and guilt and self-deprecating thoughts, you know, regarding their health and weight? Are they blaming themselves for not getting it right, you Mm -hmm. know? um, And then another one, another, you know, value is really focused, you know, specifically around freedom and independence, right? So if they're inhibited from buying new clothing or buying clothing that they want to wear, that's actually inhibiting their freedom and independence. Mm -hmm. If they're missing out on going to specific events and activities, that's also inhibiting them. If they're avoiding, you know, sports, participating in sports, for example, if they go to a pool, are they avoiding wearing a bathing suit or wearing a cover-up, you know, uh, because they feel like they have to? Um, So that's really restricting them.
2: It's so interesting so
3: get, yeah, get them. So in
2: other words, you get to it's a great answer. You get to what matters to this particular child and often yeah. it's what as parents we overlook. We get so riveted on the food and the weight, we don't get them to understand or we don't come to understand them enough to create mm-hmm. a program that they will buy into. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, we could, again, with that word motivating, right, um, they're not going to feel compelled to do something unless it's meaningful to them. And each child's different. You know, I came up okay. with these specific values. Now, let's
2: go with, once we get them to have an interest, the girl who wants to play soccer, maybe our mm-hmm. 13-year-old boy really would prefer to do some things beside video games with his friends. One of the mm-hmm. first chapters in your book is being present, To have a mindful awareness. How how do you teach Mm -hmm. that and why is that important, Michelle?
3: So, the mindful awareness is really getting to know themselves, like having self awareness. And that's on multiple levels. You know, it's both physiologically, because often, you know, and I ask this to adults too, people don't know what hunger is. They don't know what thirst is. Uh, They don't know how to gauge it in their bodies, they don't know what that feels like. So, prescriptively, we know that we need to eat, you know, at mealtimes, during breakfast, lunch, dinner. But we really don't, we can't gauge whether, in fact, we're hungry because we never really learn what those hunger cues. Um, So, it's really kind of fundamentally getting kids to really understand how their bodies work and, you know, how they're feeling inside of their bodies and being mindful of that. It's also understanding their thoughts. Because a lot of this is around their thinking, how their thinking is sabotaging uh, their success with their health.
2: Or sometimes how they're not thinking. One thing that mm-hmm. struck me when I read it, and it reminded me of someone I worked with, is at one point you say people start overeating, and when they do, they're going from zero to 10, they don't even remember often. Not only whether they were hungry, but what that they even ate. I had one person who would look around the kitchen, and there were the bags, and there were the wrappers. But she really had been so anxiously eating, Michelle, she didn't even have a memory for doing it. So, you know, the idea of this mindful awareness, not only of where your body's at, and whether you're really hungry, but even how it is you eat seemed so important in your book.
3: Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's understanding also, you know, it's the mind-body approach, it's understanding more about our minds, how they, it works, and understanding how our bodies work as well, and it's such an important skill to teach kids when they're young. It really sets the stage for good habits and healthy lifestyle from here on in. You know, many people don't necessarily have weight, you know, um, issues, but we all No one's unscathed. After the age of about 40, our metabolism slows down. So whether we like it or not, we have to really pay attention to something we may not have paid attention to before.
2: Well, one of the things that you say that I like, and people know this about mindfulness, is that it opens a space for paying Mm -hmm. attention to, am I really hungry? How many hours Mm -hmm. ago did I eat? Should I just get a snack? And as you Mm -hmm. suggest, should I drink a glass of water and wait 20 minutes and still see if I'm hungry? That space Mm -hmm. that you talk Mm -hmm. about becomes incredibly important in terms of eating in a better and healthy way.
3: Yeah. And the space also is in, you know, that you create space between the thinking and the doing. So it's that pause. It's that, you know, space. It's that pause that gives you the ability to process, which we don't do. We kind of just go from zero to ten, and, you know, we we kind of think about it as it being pretty impulsive. And when I ask people, they'll say, just like you just said, um, I didn't even have time to think. And then when I break it down for them, they're like, oh, yeah, actually, right? Because I identified 30 different, over 30 different rationalizations that we make in our minds about why we behave in that way. Whether it's, oh, it's free, or it's fat-free, or I'll make up for it later, or I'll work out, you know, to make up for it, and on and on and on. So we don't even realize that we have those thoughts until we slow down, and then we're able to identify what they are. And when I go through the list with, you know, with uh, kids, they they start giggling because they're like, could you read my mind <laughs> and they're and they're also amazed at how many rationalizations they do have and and also that it ebbs and flows so we're not we're not like unilateral right we our thoughts change whether it's because we're of our mood or where we are you know physiologically if we're tired, if we're, you know, whatever the case is. Um, so getting to know ourselves, I do, you know, spend a lot of time doing assessments of cravings, of hunger, you know, of all different kinds of elements around our relationship with food and how we behave. Okay. Um, but um, I also I... make it a very strong point to mention that we can't rely on that because we're very inconsistent. Our thoughts okay. are
2: inconsistent. So I'm. I just. I apologize. Interrupt you. Um, we're going to take a brief break, and then let's come right back. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. Maidenberg. She's the author of the new book, Free Your Child from Overeating: Fifty Three Mind and Body Strategies for Lifelong Health. When we come back, we're going to talk about emotional eating and triggers, and pick up right where we left off. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
1: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. What defines your success? Is it success in your business? Success in your personal life? Is it more money? Is it meaningful relationships? How about your passion? Listen for Taking Care of Business with host David Wallach. David's guests share their challenges and what they did to overcome them. What if you can let your passion for success lead you to your success? Taking Care of Business is broadcast live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: Looking for the best show about horse racing and handicapping? Want to play the ponies? Join us every week for Winning Ponies with John Engelhart, racing's regular guy, where you'll go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers agents and handicappers in the world of horse racing this show is the perfect complement to the winning ponies handicapping website listen for top plays for the weekend and the spot play of the week and win prizes just for calling in winning ponies with john Engelhart is live thursdays at 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific on the voice america sports network
3: have you had a chance to check out voice america's online magazine and blog Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors you can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
2: Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Maidenberg. She's the author of the new book, Free Your Child from Overreading. And before we took the break, we were speaking about emotional triggers. And we're going to get to that, but I but I mentioned to Dr. Maidenberg that one of the one of the wonderful things about this book are strategies for parents, kids, and they're very intriguing. And one of them that I thought of my kids, I thought of our family, is the mindful chip. Experience exercise. Maybe you could tell us about the purpose of that and, and how that one works, Michelle.
3: Yeah. So, you know, in the book, there are, you know, there are strategies, uh, 53 strategies to be exact, um, that really help. So, with the, with the CHIP exercise, you know, it really mimics kind of cognitive behavioral therapy and exposure work, exposure therapy. So, we know that we can't, unfortunately, restrict kids from eating any type of specific food, and that's actually not healthy. We want everybody to be able to eat whatever they want, but just in moderation. So, um, it's really giving them chips um, where they're able, first, mindfully to be able to feel it and touch it and, you know, all of that um, to really get a sense of, because we just kind of waffle it down. We don't even appreciate that the essence of what we're eating so that's number 1 and number 2 it's being able to eat it and actually feel the cravings as they come up and being able to tolerate it so to speak, or build tolerance to it. Um, And then also to be able to stop when we've had enough. So, you know, we practice with a couple of chips, like four chips or something like that. And then, you know, what it's like then to throw the bag away or to Mm -hmm. eliminate the bag, right, and just sit with those cravings when they come up. And the power really is learning how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable because that's really what it's like. Like we don't, in our minds, we need the chocolate bar, but we actually don't. We want it. You know, just like we don't need the dessert typically after a full meal, but we want it. Mm-hmm. So it's really differentiating between the two and putting yourself yep. in a position where you're able to challenge yourself in a, in a really, really fundamental way. So let's
2: talk then about increasing a young person's awareness of what's driving the feelings. As you say, we don't need it, but we need it sometimes emotionally. You talk about emotional eating, and you use the acronym HALT. Can you speak a little bit about that, Michelle?
3: Sure. So um, emotional eating, you know, it's kind of a coping mechanism that kids use sometimes, and adults do as well, and... Um, You know, so in order to deal with certain emotions, let's say, you know, um, people will, you know, overeat. So they'll use it as a source of, let's say, comfort. And um, HALT is a little acronym to help people that when they're feeling certain emotions that they're able to identify with it um, and not necessarily react to it. So when we talk about emotional eating, the cycle that usually is pervasive is, you know, there's, uh, an intense emotion that gets evoked, and it could be from a situation or otherwise, and, uh, you know, they, they eat to avoid or to soothe, to self-soothe, and once they're eating to avoid or self-soothe, this leads to more negative emotions, right? Um, and then that drives the person to overeat, and once they're overeating, their emotions return, often with additional burden of guilt, you know, because they overate, and it also, you know, compromises the healthful values and goals that we talked about before, only leaving them, you know, to feel increasingly worse, you know, which comes with shame and guilt, and then that you know, perpetuates the unhealthy and frustrating cycle that, you know, often gets perpetuated over time. So, you know, when you learn the acronym HALT, which is happy, angry, anxious, lonely, or tired, Um, and then often, I always include as well, boredom, because that often is, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of a a state, I'm going to say. It's not a feeling, but it's a state that often comes up that leads people to overeat as well. You're able to identify, you know, which emotion is operating in the moment, and instead of, again you know, focusing on food, you could focus on other things that are more productive, whether it be, you know, we t- like in the book, it kind of stipulates, some, you know, they keep an emotional eating record where they're able to see, you know, what event or situation triggered it, what were their thoughts, what were their feelings, you know, what direct action did they take or do they want to be taking um, and teaching them specifically about other things that they could do instead of overeating, right? So, um, whether it's doing mindfulness exercise, you know, whether it's doing, and it depends on also the intensity of emotion. So if it's, you know, from zero to 10, if it's out of 10, and it's, you know, extremely intense, sometimes it is useful initially, you know, to actually initiate some distraction techniques, and just initially. Um, and once they're able, to deactivate, so to speak, then they're able to be a little bit more mindful and do things that are a little bit more, you know, focused on leaning into the feelings and learning how to cope with them better rather than distracting, because distracting is actually not a good coping skill. But Um, what would be a distracting technique if you were really well? Um, Yeah, there's, you know, for example, listening to music or polishing their nails is <laughs> actually, mm-hmm. you know, with clear nail polish is always helpful because then you can't like grab food. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, again, watching their favorite TV show or doing their homework or mm-hmm. whatever it is, taking a shower. Um, you know, it could be different types of, you know, slight distractions that kind of allow them to really deactivate.
2: Michelle, one of the things that that really I thought was a real gift in the book is the idea that we would teach children about the emotional eating. Now, you start this chapter, I think, or this was one of the quotes that struck me because I've heard it. A 14-year-old girl is saying, I don't want to accept this about me. I want to be thin like my sister. Why did I have to get stuck with my mother's genes? Now, that's a very uh, specific perspective that says it's fatalistic. There's no hope. That's it. But as soon as you invite children as adult, and adults too, to know, you know what? They actually have more control, and when they know that they eat whenever they're bored, we have more leverage in terms of changing what she thinks she's stuck with.
3: Yes, yeah. There's, you know, what you're speaking to is kind of the hopelessness. Yes. Right, there's, there's intrinsic hopelessness. And comparison, like we all do that. You know, we all compare ourselves to others, and that's, you know, kind of... that that stinking thinking or that kind of um, mindiness that we do. Um, You know, it's like, for example, people will come and they'll say to me, you know, healthy food doesn't taste good or, you know, the apple doesn't taste like the brownie. Well, you know, that's true. But if you're going to be, it's not about comparing. It's about being with the apple, right? If your mind keeps shifting to the brownie and it's comparing, the apple will never be satiating. But mm-hmm. if you're able to really be with the apple and enjoy the crunchiness of it and the sweetness, and the, right, you could actually really, really enjoy the apple just for its own essence, right? And just like, for example, you know, if people are abusing substances, often they'll say to me, you know, I'm not willing to get off of this unless I get the same exact high that I, you know, get from being on it. And I was like, hmm, that's a problem, Right. Because endorphins, even if you do, you know go jogging and you have endorphins, it's not going to be the same high. Right. But could we be with the endorphins? Could we actually, right, instead of going to the place of comparing, right, could we just be with the endorphins and really kind of have gratitude and appreciate what the endorphins are providing for us in the moment?
2: Yeah. And what also fits in with that is- So if I can't get in with the apple, your whole idea of planning and maybe let's talk about the four Ps means, Mm -hmm. you know, a cupcake versus an apple. Mm. But a cupcake versus a plum or melon, Mm -hmm. maybe I can do that. You know, so that Mm -hmm. that planning piece maybe really speaks to some, you know, emotional feeding because you become more in charge rather than the victim of the cupcake.
3: Yes, yes, yes. It's empowering. I think, you know, the point to your point, it's empowering. It's an empowering approach rather than being on the other end of it, which is victimizing and feeling like you're hopeless. Right, you become empowered, and you actually feel that there's something you could do about this, and that you're worth it. Right, that there's some acceptance around it, and that there's good reason to follow through because you're worth every amount of effort that you're putting into it. And the four Ps, you know, are predicting, planning, putting the plan into action, and practicing. Um, and those are those are kind of. You know, when we talk about, like, kind of a plan, right, or a journey that we're going to go on, it's really breaking it up in that way. Um, Again, you know, going back to the predicting, we can't perfectly predict because, you know, being the human beings that we are, we're not predictable. You know, we're imperfect as human beings. So we could do our best to kind of track and to get a sense of who we are. Um, but we also have to have flexibility and openness to whatever shows up. And that's part of mindfulness, again. Um, the planning, again, whenever you're thinking ahead and you're thinking about goals and you're thinking, you really want to be realistic. You really want to be thinking about, you know, a plan. And you can't, again, you're not going to always be able to plan, right? Putting into action is how you would go about doing that. It's really strategizing or problem-solving, if you think about it. And practicing is the key. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as you know, it's like practice, practice, practice. We always have to practice. You know, the example that I always give is, you know, with an athlete, right? An athlete, they are so superior in whatever sport, right? They are, you know, they're accomplishing. But they don't say to themselves, okay, I got this. I don't need to practice. I'm good. Never. They realize that even though they have acquisition of a certain skill, in order to maintain the skill, in order to improve the skill, they have to practice. There's never an end game, ever, 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 if you want to do well at something. And I always say, if you want to do well at anything, you must put effort into it. Mm. Nothing in life comes easy. You know, and kind of the Buddhist thinking is life is full of so, suffering.
2: So let's make it very realistic to having had sons who were uh-huh. always basketball players. So... Once they could lock into the thing they wanted to have a cold drink after practice, but so uh-huh. does not the choice. Once they locked yeah. into that they loved non-sweetened iced tea, they had uh-huh. that ready. That was in yeah. their that was in their you know jugs. that was what something uh-huh. that what I had at home. or if they were going to yeah, come home exactly. starving um, uh-huh. rather than pick up you know fast food, I had the sandwich they wanted, or they had mm-hmm. made the sandwich they wanted because I was working. But if the plan and, and it gets exciting in the sense that and I've even yeah. seen people who do well with it, when, when you have the food and the drinks ready, and they are some of your favorites, the
3: practice becomes easier. Yes, exactly, exactly. And it's not about easy or hard again. Like I think we get, I think we get stuck, I'm going to say, on terminology. Okay. Right. Because, you know, again, most often a a huge rationalization that people make is this is too hard for me. I can't do this." Right. Right. And then they and, and by the way, that is such a rationalization that many, many people get caught up in. And I'm talking about children and adults for that matter, or even adults helping children. (laughs) you know, putting effort to help them or to prepare meals or whatever the case is. It's it's effort. So it's not about hard or easy. It's about real, real solid effort made Mm. to, yeah. So, you know, the other example I use with kids, which is a good one, is, you know, in their academics, right? If they want to do well on a test. They have to study. They have to put You're effort right. into studying. They have to plan it. They have to plan ahead what they need to do in order to do well on their tests. It's sort of the same thing. You know, yeah. we have to plan ahead. We have to think it through. We have to strategize, and we have to put effort into it.
2: Yeah. And one of the things that you speak about so well that is sometimes the barrier, at one point in the book you say, a thought is not a fact. So when you say, even if I study, I'm going to fail, that is not a fact. When yeah. someone says to me, I will never be a size 10 again, that is not mm-hmm. a fact. So that's Definitely. where the thinking that you talk so much about comes in, you know, with with the understanding about making a plan. That is to sabotage yourself when you have a plan made of the kind you're talking about. Um, you'll sabotage yourself if you predict that you will never get an A no matter what you do because you will not have the motivation to study at that point.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is an important distinction, like thoughts and facts. You know, and the other, there's another really cute strategy, but using the word end, right? Okay. Like, I could have the thought and I could make a choice, right? Nice. So, like, um... So the example is like, you know, I I have to have that cupcake, right? Like I must have that cupcake, which is a thought, right? It's not a fact. Like the person could decide not to have the cupcake, but I could I could have the I could I could have the thought of having the cupcake and decide, right, to have you know a different. Okay, we're going to take a break at this point,
2: and you've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. Michelle Maidenberg, but talking about her new book, Free Your Child from Overeating 53 Mind Body Strategies. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
1: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Are you ready for a broad look at everything to do with the world of sports?
0: Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
1: You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest, at 1-866-472-5788 That's 1-866-472-5788 You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com Now back to Psych Up Live
2: Welcome back to Psych Up Live We're speaking with Dr. Maidenberg about helping your child with the problem of overeating So Michelle, we were talking about um, strategies, and we were talking about uh, ideas that thoughts are not necessarily facts and mm-hmm. you can and you added on a wonderful rejoinder to that. Maybe you could repeat that
3: with the end. Yeah, so what I was saying is um, that that just by adding just by adding the word end that it really um, helps to reframe in terms of the way we think. And that's the beauty of using, you know, certain language. And also kind of, again, it's the mindfulness of really thinking about how we think about things and how we reframe them, in, you know, in our, both in our speech and also in our mind. So, for example, if you say something like, you know, I have to have that cookie. You know, I have to have it now. You know, you could say something like and reframe it for yourself. Um, I'm having the thought that I have to have that cookie and I'm deciding that I'm going to only eat half the cookie or I'm deciding that I'm going to eat another type of snack. Mm
0: -hmm. So it
3: really gives you options and choices when you think of it in a different way. Okay. One
2: thing that is really, um, one message in the book that I found very, very valuable was the notion that this is a family affair, the healthy eating, that no sibling, no particular teen is identified as the problem with, the one with the problem with weight. And somehow you, you approach it as a family situation. Could you just speak a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, you know, often I have to say within homes that, you know, where I've talked to parents, it's often not one, it's often one child actually that has, you know, the issue with overeating. Um, And, you know, what's what's interesting about that is we could often get very kind of caught up, I'm going to say, um... You know, we could get very, very caught up in the issue around, you know, that that's the person we need to, you know, kind of monitor, Um, you know, so it could lead to, let's say, giving more dessert for one kid, you know, and taking away dessert from another child, you know, that that's the person that's overeating, you know, the child that's overeating. Or, like, I had a situation where I was seeing seeing recently um, a young, you know, teenager, and she was telling me that, you know, her mother like physically locks up with a lock, Hmm. the snacks, and everybody has access to it except for her. And you could only imagine the shame that she feels. She was in tears when she was talking about this. Wow. She was mortified, Hmm. yeah. Yeah, she was really upset and mortified by that. And I explained to her, I said, it's actually something that we, no matter what you look like or how much you weigh, Everyone needs to actually acquire a healthy lifestyle. It doesn't really matter. Um, And it's skills that's helpful for everyone in the household, not just for her. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, it's sending the message, you know, if you think about it subliminally, that, you know, when there's an issue with somebody that we're not there to support, you know, that child. So, and I I use the other example, if somebody has a broken leg, um, you're going to make every effort to move the furniture out of the way so the person could walk through the house. Right. right. You're not going to put barriers so that they can't walk and they, you know, through the house. And it's the same thing. If somebody has a barrier or somebody has an obstacle that they're trying to work on, you're going to be supportive no matter what that is. And, right. you know, just like with weight, it's a health, It's you know, it's a health um, challenge, just like right. with any other health challenge.
2: I think at one point you say no child or teen chooses to be overweight. Um, a lot of factors go into it. But I like the way... Everyone would be walking a different pathway when you have to make room for someone on crutches. Everyone in the family Mm -hmm. would be walking in a different way. So it's really important. The other thing that you do in the book is at the end of every Mm -hmm. chapter, you invite the parents to check on their own baggage when it comes to weight and food and, and issues. And that seems really important.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because everybody, we all have to check in. You know, we all have our own relationship with food, and it usually carries over, and that goes for parents as well. Um, I remember when I was seeing this um, mother and daughter, and they were telling me a story that the grandmother, every time they visit the grandmother, that she constantly, constantly hounds them and watches, and this is this is her adult daughter. I think the daughter was in her 50s, <laughs> and mm-hmm. she's like, why are you eating that? Or what are you eating? Or stop eating that? Or are you going to get fat? You know, she would say those things to her. And her and her daughter would look at each other like, there she goes again, right? But they're Mm. not going to stop her or change her because this is kind of what she does. And um, so they, they both kind of laugh at it. And she used to tell me when she was younger, she used to hide food and go to her car and eat in her car, you know, secretly and privately because she was so mortified by what her mother was saying to her publicly, and she would say it in front of other people, too, that she finds herself, even today as an adult, you know, this compulsion to go eating privately and, you know, in her car, and she'll just sometimes wow. eat that she catches herself, yeah, mm. um, well, and you... the daughter is so aware of it that when the grandmother does that, you know, she, they look at each other for support because it's so painful. Right. Right.
2: Well, Mm -hmm. in one part of the book, when you talked about the the baggage of parents, it even implies, take a look at the culture, because I I think one example you gave is, if every meal ends with ice cream, you've set up a really um, conditioning situation where a person expects a sweet and sugar Mm -hmm. at the end of a meal. And so you have to almost, the family and the parent has to start to rethink that paradigm or you just can't point to the child's, you know, need for sugar because you've set it in play.
3: Yes, yes, it's really important. You know, first of all, to role model, what you're trying to teach your kids is really, really important. Um, and impulsivity could be, you know, it doesn't only speak to food. It speaks to uh, yelling or screaming or whatever. You know, there's many behaviors. Um and, yes, you want to set up, you know, kind of good, I'm going to say, lessons, right, and behaviors that everyone could follow in the household. Um, and it is, you know, you're setting precedents. You always have to think about that. You're setting precedents, you're learning certain behaviors, and everyone needs to be supporting one another. There's no other way to accomplish this. Mm-hmm. You can't identify or isolate one specific person in the household. Um, you know, and it's important to, for that to be consistent.
2: Well, you you specifically talk about um, teasing with siblings, which I loved how you talked about the no tolerance for teasing. Because if, you know, we're also concerned about it's difficult enough to have kids deal with bullying outside the home. But if we have bullying and teasing going on inside the home, there is no safety then for that particular youngster.
3: Yeah. And unfortunately, um, I did, you know, include some statistics which is pretty jarring, I'm going to say. But most of the bullying actually goes on in the family, Mm. believe it or not. Yeah, even more so than in schools. Um, You know, we call it kind of soft bullying because, right, it's teasing or however you want to refer to it, but it is. It's bullying. It makes, you know, the child feel extremely shameful. Um, and that happens, it, it doesn't only happen between siblings, by the way, it often happens between parents and children, too. Yes, yes. Yeah, and it, it could be extremely hurtful, extremely hurtful. So really being cognizant of that. Um, you know, and it causes sometimes shameful behavior, like I said, hiding food, sneaking food, right. um, and, and behaviors that, that really speak to the shame that the child's feeling. So, you know, it makes them feel helpless and incompetent and inadequate and unlovable, and I could go on and on and on. Mm. So we, we want to really be careful of the dynamics that create in our households. That's really important.
2: And just like in outside bullying, there really is no bystander. Mm -hmm. That is to be quiet when that's going on is to be complicit. So when the family really starts to say, we don't do that here. What we do is all Mm -hmm. try to eat as healthy as we can. And you've given some wonderful examples in the book. Um, You really start to turn around. Home has to be a safe place.
3: Yeah, it does. And and I, I always say it's family rules. You know, we have to have some family rules that everybody abides by. You know, if there's a general rule, nobody, you know, again, mocks another person or speaks to their person, then that that... Carries over to anything, not only food mm. and health and weight. It carries over, you know, just like if you're saying somebody's stupid, right, or whatever. You know, right. people, they use all these acronyms, so you have to be careful that you're conveying kind of a safe space in the household for every person that's in the household, and it it has to apply to every child in the household too. Um, okay. And, the, and there's certain ways of communicating, which you know, I spend a whole chapter talking about communication and the way that the verbiage that we use, and we, we you know, as parents, sometimes we'll talk about ourselves and we'll say, oh, I can't believe the way I look in the skirt. You know, my hips are, right, hanging over. And our children hear that. Or how could could she wear that? What was she thinking when she walked out of the house this morning? (laughs) You know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it seems pretty, like, again, nonsensical, but it isn't because it's messages that we're communicating to our children. They're hearing what we're saying. Absolutely, absolutely.
2: In the interest of time, I want to just quickly ask you two things. If you had a quick sure. take-home message to all our listeners out there in a line, what would you say to them, Michelle?
3: I think, I think again, I'm going to say that it's really important to speak to kids where they're at, um, not where we think they should be at. It's easy for us to go into that space, and it really takes away from kids um, meeting their personal, you know, goals and needs. So really listening to kids. Why do they want to do this? What compels them? And the most important thing is supporting them, supporting them through their efforts. So whether that's exercising with them or strategizing with them about what's getting in the way, for example... But it really has to be something that they feel supported by, they're able to speak about. Um, And when they have feelings, not to necessarily deny their feelings or invalidate their feelings, to just be there to listen. And that's really hard sometimes as parents for us to do because we don't want to see our children in pain. We want to get rid of their pain. And that's often not helpful.
2: So wonderful advice. So if I'm a parent and I have an overweight youngster, and she or he is motivated to change, what's my first step? How can I find your book? Um, so my book is
3: do- available on Amazon. You could find it on Barnes & Noble, and it's called uh, Free Your Child from Overeating, a handbook for helping kids and teens, and it's 53 Mind-Body Strategies for Lifelong Health. At, at the end of each chapter, th- there is a mindfulness exercise, a guided meditation and which loops back to my website, and you could actually hear um, you could actually hear the live recording, the audio recording of it. It's with great. my voice. Yes. Yeah. so um, and, and it helps to like integrate all the information. So you're also teaching kids all these strategies and all these skills that are in my book apply to all different kinds of adversity, whether it's procrastination, anxiety depressive symptoms. Uh, it could really be applicable to many, many different, um, you know, challenges and it also is helpful because it's versatile. It could be used with kids alone. It could be used with parents and kids. It could be used with just parents. It could be used with for practitioners. So, it's very user friendly and it's, you know, pretty simple to understand. Um, and I also have a lot of blogs on my website, which is my name, www.michellemeidenberg.com. A lot of parenting blogs um, and, again, more information about the book, of course.
2: Now, Michelle, um, you, you run these camps. If someone wanted more information about the camps, do they just go to your website?
3: Well, I, I actually am a consultant and I created the Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Program within Camp Shane and Camp and also Shane Diet and Fitness Resorts for adults and for young adults. So I consult with them. Like I said, I created their CBT program. That's, you know, my role with them. Okay. Um, it is a summer program for kids and located in six different states, and they could check their website, which is, like I said, Camp Shane or Shane Fitness and Diet Resorts, and they could get okay. that information.
2: Okay. I, I want to thank you, Michelle, for your book, which is a gift um, I want the listeners to know it really has some wonderful strategies. It will make a difference in your life as well as your child's. Michelle, thanks Thank for you. the work you do and for coming on Psych Up Live today.
3: Thank you so much. It was really you- nice to be here and to meet you.
2: Thanks so much. I also want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this in any prior show as a podcast. By 6 p.m. Eastern, this will be a podcast on my host site, on the podcast apps of your iPhone, iTunes, Sketcher, on the Voice America, Psych Up Live Podcast. Remember to drop me a comment or question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, mostly take care, thanks, and be listening.